The title of this evening's message is The Admonition to warn you beforehand that you may be prepared for what is going to happen next. Can you ever remember a time in your life where someone came alongside of you and gave you a warning because they saw that you were heading into danger? that you were making decisions possibly in your life that you were later going to regret. And they wanted to get your attention because they had already been there. They were warning you, stop, hold your course. Don't make that decision. I've been where you have been. I've made that decision and it took me off track. It took me away from what I wanted to accomplish. I find my role as a parent of a teenager uh, really being uh, uh, boiled down to just that, warning my daughter uh, of, the, of the distractions that could take her away from what is really important at this moment in her life. You know, hit the books hard, continue to get those good grades, give yourself every opportunity at the end of your high school career for whatever further education you may want to desire to improve. Can you remember a time that maybe a parent came alongside of you? A mentor, a co-worker, a brother or sister, biologically or in the Lord, and said, stop what you're doing. Hold on. Be careful going forward. I've been there. That's what I sense in these last verses of the letter that Jude writes to us this evening. It's it's be careful going forward. Prepare yourself for what you are about to experience. Be careful. Walk cautiously. Keep yourself in the love of God. Telling us how to do that and what that means. You know, we have to be cautious today, don't we? Let me ask you a question. Do you believe everything that you hear on TV? Is everything on the internet true? Absolutely. Right? Gospel. Turn it on, open my browser, there it is. Everything's true. No, you got to be cautious. You got to be discerning. You have to be careful, right? Because opinions are gold to people today. And whatever opinion a person holds to, it is based upon their experiences in life. And for them, that's truth. So you have to be careful that you're not uh, subjecting yourself to faulty information. So you have to be careful. It's amazing that today, newscasters are stepping down because of credibility issues. I don't know why it took so long. How much do you believe when you listen to the news anymore? Maybe a quarter, half, the national average is 18%. 18% of uh, uh, Americans actually believe what they're hearing on their nightly newscasts. Be careful. You have to guard yourself. You have to be cautious going forward. And yet, even in some of the greatest uh, placements of defense, there are always weaknesses. One of the things that I've always wanted to visit as an individual is the Great Wall of China. Anybody else would like to see the Great Wall of China? 
Did you know the history of the Great Wall of China tells us that it was breached three times by enemies, but it was never broken or destroyed? Do you know how it was breached? By the enemies bribing soldiers at different gates of the Great Wall of China. This huge wall of defense to keep out the Scythians. And yet their vulnerability came down to the guards at the gates. What's the point of having a wall when the guard at the gate can be bribed and moved and the door can simply be opened? See, we all have to be cautious. Each one of us has to be careful going forward. We have to consider what we are listening to, what we are reading, what we are hearing. And when it is taught as biblical fact, we must check it out for ourselves within the Bible to know if it is truly of God or not. But it's a role that we all play a part within. Not just me, not just elders and leaders, but all of us must be discerning enough to know truth from error. When we think about organizations like the Mormon Church or the Jehovah's Witnesses, do you realize that there is a statistic that 80% of the people who gravitate towards such groups, such as the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses, 80% of them have had a church background. But somehow, someway, because they didn't keep their doctrine in order their teachings of the Bible in order, at a moment in time, a Mormon came to them or a Jehovah's Witness came to them at maybe a place of vulnerability, a place of weakness, or a place of ignorance. And when the individual from these other organizations seemed to know what they were talking about, it was enticing. They felt that they were wrong and they were drawn away from the church. We must be careful going forward. We must heed to this admonition in which Jude is presenting to us here this evening in the last portion of his letter. He started out the letter by stating to all of us that he wanted to write about our common salvation in Jesus Christ, but circumstances would not allow him to do so. He then needed to change course. He needed to write about something different. He wanted you to know that there is an issue that we must be aware of and must then look to fulfill, and that is to contend for the faith once and for all given to the saints, the faith that we hold to in Jesus Christ. Discerning truth from error and to contend, bringing error out to the light and exposing it for what it is and therefore not heeding it and being led away by it. So when that error is uh, presented, we should be able to recognize it as such and not be tempted by it, allured by it, drawn away by it into something that is erroneous. And that is what Jude wrote about. In the aim of the letter, the beginning portion, he said, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I couldn't. I needed to write to you to contend for the faith. And that's why we called this series, Let Us Contend. 
He then went on to the argument, verses 5 through 16, where he displayed God's reaction to these false teachers and he profiled them for us. He uh, recorded for us the dangers of these individuals and how detrimental they will be to you and I if we were to heed them. And then lastly, he comes to this admonition where you and I now are warned and encouraged and called to press forward. Look at me in verse 17 of Jude's letter. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in, the most, in the, uh, your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, uh, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. In the last section of almost every letter of the New Testament written uh, by the apostles, specifically the epistles, we find at the end of them usually commands or directives that are given by the writer to the reader. Those commands are contained in words that are called imperatives. And there are five here in our text this evening that we're going to look at quickly. These imperatives are telling us to do something. Or imperatives can also be prohibitions where they're telling us not to do something. But here Jude wants us to do five different things as he concludes this letter. And it is based on those things that we are going to walk through our text this evening. And the first thing that he wants us to do is to remember. You must remember verse 17. Look with me. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what you have read. Remember what you have heard. Bring to uh, remembrance those things at those moments when they are so crucially needed. Don't just arbitrarily dismiss things that you hear just because at the moment you may feel that they are irrelative. Remember that often the Word of God is preparatory. It is preparing you for something that is yet to come. We often hear that people will say about a message or a, about a uh, Bible study, that, oh, I've heard that already. Or 
oh, uh, that doesn't really meet my uh, particular moment and the need that I'm facing. And often they miss completely the whole understanding and the idea of preparing for things before they come. That's a problem with our nation today. We put off things until the crisis occurs and then we address them. We do that as a nation and we do that as individuals. It's just part of our cultural fabric. Very few people are plotting and planning ahead or becoming proactive, hoping to avoid something that could go wrong down the line. You know, we all have insurance for different purposes, don't we? We have insurance for health reasons. We have insurance for our automobiles. We have insurances for our homes. We have even insurances on our life. I never thought about getting life insurance until I was married. I didn't really see a need to. Why should I leave any money for anybody behind? I'm gone. Pretty selfish. Who am I going to leave as my beneficiary? My dad? My goldfish? But as soon as I got married, all of a sudden, life insurance made sense. I had a responsibility. And even though I'm healthy today, I don't know what tomorrow may bring. The same way with health insurance. I didn't care about health insurance when I was 18, 19, 20 years old. At 46, I thank God for that little card in my wallet. And I'm glad I have it. That's the way we are. We always wait until after the fact. And then when the crisis hit, then we try to scramble and prepare and to try to rectify it or, or, or correct it at that moment after it's too late. You know, nobody would think of having homeowner's insurance if you didn't own a home. Once you buy a home, you see the necessity of homeowner's insurance. Or those people who live next to rivers and don't realize that flood insurance was something that they had to add on. You know, it's after the fact that all of a sudden the reality becomes necessary. He's saying, remember, remember what you have heard, meaning that they had already heard and they had already been warned that in the last days, men were going to come preaching false things, teaching false things to lead people astray, to lead people away from Christ and to ultimately destroy their lives. Be prepared. It's going to happen. It's going to occur. How do you be prepared? By knowing the truth. And after you know the truth, you're also prepared by the prediction saying and stating that these things are going to occur before they happen. And Jude's not the only one who wrote this. Listen to Peter. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have heard. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir up Uh, you by way of reminder, since I know that putting off my body will soon uh, take place, as our Lord Jesus Christ made it clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. 2 Peter 1, 12 through 15. I'm writing to you again. This is the last time I'm going to be able to. Please remember what I'm saying. You already know them, but please be reminded of them. As a parent, I can tell you, the second function of my parenting is reminding my daughter. Clean your room. Clean your room. Clean your room. Clean your room. I didn't hear you. Clean your room. 
clean your room. Take out the dog. Take out the dog. Take out the dog. I, I just I just want to record it and just, you know, have it play over and over again. I honestly thought, of, you know, putting a recorder in her room while she is sleeping, just gently telling her every single night, clean your room. Take out the dog. Be good. God is watching. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and so forth. Because I just seem to be reminding. We're God's children, right? We are like, just like a stubborn teenager. We need to be reminded all the time. And I don't care how old you are in the Lord, 30 years old or 10 years old, 5 years old, 3 years old, it doesn't matter. We need to be reminded over and over and over again. And that's what Peter, that's what Jude, that's what Paul wrote about. Peter went on in his second epistle to tell us about these men coming in the last days, 2 Peter 3, 1 through 3. Now this, the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, in both of them I am stirring up uh, your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of our Lord Jesus and Savior through your apostles, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Paul stated to us that in the last days, in the last days there would be great difficulties, perilous times. There would be heretics leading people away, apostates falling away, preparing us warning us. Now, often it is a subtle change. It doesn't happen abruptly. It is a subtle change. And as we see Christianity progress in this nation, taking it from a a Christ-centered faith to a self-centered faith, there you see the abandonment and the adoption, the abandonment of truth and the adoption of error. Be warned, be prepared, be ready. That is our first imperative. As he goes on to say in verse 18, they said to you, the the apostles said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, people who mock and make fun of your Christian faith. I don't know if you know this, but that's exactly what's happening in our country today. A nation that has been built on Judeo-Christian principles, today those, those uh, principles are being thoroughly rejected, but to the point of mockery, that if you hold to biblical convictions, you hold to an archaic, antiquated moral standard, and you are hindering the natural progression and evolution of society. I sure hope I am hindering the natural progression of the moral of our society because it is just falling deeper and deeper and deeper into debauchery. I'm sorry, but I did not expect 30 years into my Christian faith to be faced with some of the realities that we are currently faced with today. I have been talking to believers who are older in the faith who have said the same thing. I can't believe how fast everything changed. It has. That's absolutely true. Let me ask you a question. If we continue on this same road and the Lord tarries for another 20 years, what is society going to look like in this nation? Wow. 
If the Lord tarries, are we prepared to walk in that type of culture? Romans chapter 1 culture. Are we ready for it? Are we prepared for it? Are we, are we positioned for it as Christians? Think about it. Let me speak to parents here. Are our children ready and prepared for those things? It's one thing for us. But what about our children? Our children have grown up in Christian homes. They've been saturated with Christianity their whole life. They may, haven't, they may not have had that radical transformation from the world to Christ like some of us have had. And realize and know what it means to be rescued. And know what it means to be forgiven and saved from a world that is dying. Our, our children have grown up in it. Are they going to be able to navigate the world? Are they going to be able to stay true to Christ? Or are they going to fall and compromise because they want to uh, avoid any type of persecution that their faith in Christ might bring? Questions that we must ask ourselves. These scoffers, they were following their own ungodly passions. Today, people's natural appetites drive everything. You cannot ask an individual to suppress their natural appetites in any way. Sex outside of marriage, completely acceptable. Same-sex marriage, completely acceptable. You can't say that those natural appetites, I say natural in the sense of fallen nature, sinful nature appetites, are not being suppressed any longer by stronger convictions to a higher standard. How much longer is it? We already have court cases that are moving for multiplicity of wives. How much longer now that we've decided to redefine marriage can the federal government state that, okay, um, wow, where do we draw the line now? You know, okay, well, we've allowed this. How much more do we need to allow to occur? But here in America, if you tell someone to sacrifice or to wait or to deny themselves, it's like you get instant rebellion because we have created a culture saturated with the idea that all natural desires are meant to be fulfilled any way we see fit. These individuals that are luring people away are being drawn away by their ungodly passions. It is these, as Jude goes on to say, that cause divisions within the church. They are worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. That is the quality, the character of these false teachers that should be Uh, identified as such. Devoid of the Spirit, they are not saved. They are not Christians. They are not in Christ. They're outside of that. Which then leads us to our second imperative found in verse 21. But you, beloved, building yourself up in in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, verse 21, keep is the next one, yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. There has been many understandings of what this 
particular directive means. Keep yourself in the love of God. Some have just simply equated this as keeping ourselves in a position of blessing before God. Keeping ourselves in a position where God can freely bless us as He so chooses to do so. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I don't believe that's what Jude is saying here. For grammatically, we find that the the primary clause of this phrase is to keep yourself in the love of God. But there are three embedded clauses that identify what that means found in these two verses. It is something you can identify by looking at the original language itself. And what you find here is that keep yourself in the love of God means three things. Number one, it means, backing up, it means here uh, building yourself up in your most holy faith, number one. Number two, praying in the Holy Spirit. And number three, waiting for the mercies of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So keeping ourselves in the love of God consists of those three things. Building yourself up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and um, waiting for the mercies of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's what it means. That's exactly what it means. To keep means to continue or to hold in custody, to guard, to keep watch, to be diligent concerning your faith in Jesus Christ. You know, it is amazing to me when someone can apply themselves to an area of self-discipline so uh, thoroughly. Because it's a lost art here in America to be self-disciplined to the point uh, of complete uh, thoroughness uh, in any one particular area of life. But that is what he is asking us to do here. Keep yourself in the love of God, and here's how to do it. But keep diligent about your walk with the Lord. Be aware. Stay diligent. Stay committed. Someone who's committed to a certain diet, it, it is very difficult. It, 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 it needs self-denial. It needs self-discipline. Someone who's committed to uh, the pursuit of a career path or an educational path, it takes self-discipline. It takes self-denial. Using the time wisely to apply yourself properly to those things. He's saying, now do the same for your Christian faith. Because everything else is dependent upon this. This is why devotions are so important. This is why personal prayer lives are so important. This is why fellowship is so important. Service and worship are so important. That's why it's so important. But if we look at the three elements that create the um, keeping ourselves in the love of God, number one, building yourself up in the most holy faith. The holy faith is the foundation of everything that Christ laid and that the apostles then built upon and taught us. It is keeping ourselves in that position and growing, building ourselves up in the, in the sense of there's edification, there is learning, there is growing. And though this is a natural process, your responsibility is necessary also. Studying the Word of God, not just reading it, as a comfort read, 
but applying yourself to study it. And I would encourage every believer in Jesus Christ to put together a small, simple library, either on your computer or on a bookshelf, of books that you can reference to help you study the Word of God. Maybe you want to dig into a word. Oh, that's an interesting word. I want to know a little bit more about that. Oh, okay, what does he mean by that statement? That seems key, crucial to my reading. What does he mean? And get some information to help you learn and to grow, to study the Word of God. Building yourself up in the most holy faith. Learning and growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you do that through His Word. That's why the Word of God daily is so important. Not just reading it, but learning it. Learning it. So thoroughly that it's part of you. You know, it's integrated in your DNA. You know, it's, it's something that you're so familiar with. I, I'm, I'm so impressed by people who can uh, rattle off stats from their favorite sports, you know, Uh, baseball statistics or basketball or hockey and they know it so thoroughly or people who are impressed with literature and they have a favorite author and they're so familiar with each character of that author that when a movie comes out they're one of the worst ones to go to the movie with because they're sitting next to you saying the book is so much better the book is so much better oh this director did a terrible job developing the characters i'm like i don't care i'm in for it look at the cool sword man you know it's just like this look at that spaceship that's all i'm in for it for look at the dinosaur well i don't think the director really caught the author's idea of the dinosaur they recreated a dinosaur from dna i don't think it's real you know anything is going to work at this point for me or they talk about their favorite TV show and they know it so thoroughly and they, you know, they're discussing it. And yet Christians, when it comes to the Bible, they don't seem to have that same integration with the Word of God. It should be living and breathing and moving within us. And we should be so familiar with it in our lives. And that way when life experiences uh, come our way or temptation comes our way or decisions need to be made, We just naturally rely on our understanding and the wisdom that the Word of God produces within us, building ourselves up in the most holy faith. The second aspect of keeping ourselves in the love of God, not that we're earning God's love. Let's make that clear. Not keeping ourselves, not earning God's love. God loves us because He chose to love us in Christ. But second is our prayer lives. I don't know about you, but I don't know if I've ever met a Christian who says they're completely satisfied with their prayer lives. You know, every time I think I got a dynamic prayer life, I read about a saint from the past. And I'm moved and I'm blown away. And one of my favorite and Dina's favorite is George Mueller. We, we just always seem to go back to him and talk about him and just his faith, his prayer life, his understanding of the Word of God. And there are so many others that had dynamic prayer lives that God used mightily throughout history. Praying in the Holy Spirit, it meant praying and allowing the Spirit of God to lead the prayers. Again, just like the Word of God being at our, the tip of our tongue always, 
at the forefront of our mind always, prayer should come to us as naturally as breathing as believers in Jesus Christ. Just spending time with the Lord on our knees, on our face before God and just saying, Lord, having the understanding that we have the privilege of coming before God at any time and to make any request. And He is always there. He is always available. The door is always open and He always has time for us. That's amazing to me. The privilege of prayer that so many, including myself, I feel, so underutilize as a believer in Jesus Christ. And then there's lastly the anticipation of his return. You and I experience the mercy of God on a daily basis. But sometimes I don't think we realize that. I don't think we fully comprehend that idea that his mercies towards us are a new every single morning. I think of, uh, of uh, Jeremiah sitting in that cave and, and, and lamentations when he wrote this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That is found in the book of Lamentations. Okay? I don't think we get that. I, I really don't. Because I think if we knew that and if we got it and if we truly comprehended it, we would have such a disdain for sin. But I don't think we get it sometimes. But when we stand face to face with Christ at His return, okay? Face to face with the Lord and we are now experiencing mercy and grace rather than wrath and judgment, how thankful are we going to be for that mercy? Not getting what we deserve. Okay? Throughout the New Testament, that's how they saw the return of Jesus Christ. It's where they looked at their mercy face to face. It's where the reality of the mercy really became known to them when the Lord returns. And in the wake of that understanding, living accordingly, living in the blessed hope of the Lord's return. Let me read some verses for you. Listen to how Titus wrote about the mercy. As D.A. Carson said this, Wait for mercy, error is best avoided by a keen sense of expectation of the Lord's return. When His mercy, already experienced initially and daily, will finally be realized as the work of salvation is completed. He goes on, I think of Titus when he writes this, as Paul wrote to Titus, excuse me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He's not the only one. Think of what John wrote in 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. 
Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And then Jesus himself said this in John 15, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And as Jude encouraged us to keep ourselves in the love of God, Jesus says, and I think this is where it derives from, abide in my love. And then he goes on in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The anticipation of the Lord's return, the knowledge that we will experience mercy at that moment rather than wrath and judgment because we are in Christ should lead us to live godly lives now. That's the way they took it then. They didn't take it for granted. I don't know about you, but seeing the Lord going to the cross and being crucified and executed in the manner that he was, I think would have had a lasting impression. I can't even watch the Passion of the Christ, okay? I mean, that's brutal, but it's reality. This is what he went through. Not for his sins, mind you, but for mine. And because I place my faith and trust in him and the sacrifice that he has made on my behalf, I now can have mercy from God, and that mercy and that steadfast love are renewed every single morning. Do we appreciate it? Do we know that? Do we comprehend that? Well, we will when we are standing before him at the end and we experience that mercy's full effect in the completion of our salvation. But our preparation isn't only internal, but it is also external. In this admonishment, we also have the looking forward and looking out from us to those around us. Verse 22, we find twice that we are called upon to have mercy and that we are called upon to save others. Verse 22, and have mercy on those who doubt, those who are uh, confused by these heretics, by these individuals who have crept in unnoticed. Have mercy on these individuals. The unbelievers that have already gone there uh, after them save others by snatching them out of the fire. And that is referring to the fire of hell. Be diligent about proclaiming the truth and trying to draw them out of the path in which they are personally on. But then to those others who have embraced such things, three different group, people groups are mentioned here. To others show mercy with fear. Be careful hating even the garments stained by the flesh. It is a phrase that is used to uh, depict defilement. Uh, in the Old Testament, when one was, had, a leper, had leprosy, even their clothes were defiled, and if one touched their clothing, they would be defiled. And so Judah is saying, approach these people in mercy, and, and, and show mercy because God is ultimately going to deal with them but beware, do it in fear, be careful, and know that even, even those things that are around them 
Most believe that it is referring to the uh, outworking of the sins that they are currently involved in can have a detriment on those who may approach them. Be careful, but have mercy and to save. And then he moves into a doxology. He moves into a time where he simply praises God for all that God has done. It's one of the most famous doxologies in all the Bible, listing out uh, four dynamic characters of God that all of us should meditate upon on a daily basis. First, know in verse 24. Now to him who is able to what? Keep you. So in verse 21, we read, is that right? Verse 21. We are to keep ourselves. Here, verse 24, he keeps us. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Working hand in hand. We have to be responsible for ourselves. By keeping ourselves in the love of God, building ourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and to wait earnestly for the mercies that will arrive at the coming of Jesus Christ and the eternal life that is to follow. There's our responsibility. But know that God is able to keep you. The phrase met in verse 21 is the phrase of stance of continuing. He has placed you in himself, now continue in him, abide in him. Here it's a more permanent idea. He is able to keep you from stumbling, and before you fall, you first what? Stumble. Before you trip, you first stumble. So he who is able to prevent you from stumbling and to present you how before the Lord? Blameless. It is not we who present ourselves blameless. It is God who presents us blameless before him. Before the presence of his glory with great joy. The only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And in those four very descriptive words, he is praising God for God's ability to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless in the presence of his glory, which we are absolutely incapable of doing ourselves, God can do for us. And because of that, he breaks out in these four words, the glory is the sum total of all that God is and that all that God does. Everything about him is glorious. The glory of man fades as the mown grass, as one has written. But the glory of God goes on eternally. And then it's his majesty, meaning greatness, his magnificence, his dominion, the sovereignty of God over all things. That's what it's referring to. And his authority, his power before all things. He has ultimate authority, which is the right to use his power as he sees fit. 
And it is that in which he is doing to keep you from stumbling before all time and now and forever. Think of that. Before all time, now and forever. I'm amazed to think at times when I'm by myself, one of the things I love to do in spring and in fall and in summer, I love to go out during the week and just walk on the beautiful bike path through the woods near my house. I love doing it because I'm alone with God. No, no you know, iPod, nothing. Just out there with the Lord. And you can think on things. And the woods that I happen to walk through are woods that I am very familiar with, that I grew up within, meaning I didn't grow up in the woods. Uh, I didn't have a little house out in the woods. Uh, but I, I used to go there as a kid. I, I remember going there as a young kid and, you know, and now as an adult and taking my daughter there when she was young and, and so forth. I walk through there and I think of the work of God in my life. How he saved a 16-year-old young man like myself. How he blessed me with a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And then how he blessed me with my family and everything that I do, my ministry, everything. And what he's doing today and what he's going to do tomorrow. And I realized that it was him from beginning to end. It was him who did it all. And all you can do is just say, I praise you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. I thank you. That's Jude bringing all of this together in this last admonishment to you and I. As one wrote in closing of the book of Jude, he said this, This well-known benediction contains a wealth of spiritual truth for the believer to receive. If we want to keep our feet on the ground spiritually, walk straight and not stumble, then we must yield ourselves fully to the Savior. He alone is able to guard us, but we must keep ourselves in the love of God. He is able if we are willing. And that is the way Jude concludes his letter that is asking us to contend for the faith.